You want to pull out your Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. You ever fall into that trap where when you know a story and you know how it ends, you know a movie or a TV show, you've already seen it, that as soon as it starts, you kind of very quickly play everything that's going to happen through your mind, and then it still happens, but you're not paying that close attention to it. Now, sometimes, you know, especially if you've grown up into, in the church and you have some familiarity with the stories, especially the Old Testament, when it gets to that story, you're like, okay, yeah, I don't know what happens. This is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to be over. And you still read it, but you don't read it as closely, and you don't think about it, and you don't think about it critically. Like, you don't use your imagination in it. Like, I, I grew up in church, and so I find myself doing that with a lot of stories in the Old Testament. Like, oh, I know exactly what's going to happen, and now I'm on to the next thing. But when you really stop and you start thinking about the stories in the Scripture, some of them are literally unbelievable. Like, take, for example, one that uh, we all know, even if this is your first time in church. You'll be familiar with the story of Moses and the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, right? You remember that story? Uh, God is delivering his people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt. And, you know, they're real slaves. They're not just, you know, fictional slaves. They're not just forced laborers. They are real slaves. And not only have they been slaves, their parents were slaves, their grandparents were slaves, their great-grandparents were slaves. 400 years of slavery. God rescues them out of that slavery through signs and wonders. The king of, the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, he lets the Israelites go. And, and so they're head out into the wilderness. They're on their way to the land of promise, which God had promised them. But they get out there, and Pharaoh changes his mind, right? You remember? And he's like, you know, free labor is better than no labor. And so he sends his army out after them. Now, if you're not thinking critically about the story, you kind of already know what's going to happen, and you're not worried about it. But you remember, they were living it. They didn't know how it was going to turn out. You've got this massive amount of people, men, women, children, all of their stuff, and they are very slowly creeping through the wilderness. Meanwhile, you have Pharaoh's army uh, pursuing them at a much faster rate, so the Israelites know at some point Pharaoh is pursuing us. He wants to bring us back into slavery or worse, he wants to kill us. But they're trapped because Moses has led them to the edge of the Red Sea. Now this is not just a big lake which will take you an extra 30 minutes to walk around. This is like weeks and months to walk around and you can't wade through it. It's not ankle deep. It's a legitimate sea. And so I don't know if you've stood at a body of water recently and just imagine what it would be like to part that thing. So drive down to beautiful Galveston and just try it. Just stand in front of the, 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 the bay if you want to do the bay. That seems easier than the, the whole gulf, gulf. And just ask God, will you part this sea? Hold your hands up in the air do a dance, whatever you, whatever you want to do. I, imagine that. It seems kind of unrealistic, doesn't it? And maybe the sea is a little too big. Maybe you, you know a lake. You want to go try a lake. Maybe you just want to go to the concrete drainage ditch at the end of your, your street and just try to part that. There'll be some water in it because of all the rain yesterday. Just see. Just stand there today after church and part. You know, just try it. To us, you know, the end of the story, it doesn't seem that amazing. But if you can actually walk in the story, you understand what a big deal it is. And how miraculous and how powerful it was for God to do this miracle. But because I fast forward to the end of so many stories, I forget that the same God who did those things is the same God who we've gathered around today. And what we're going to see from the scripture is that all of us have enemies of our genuine faith. 
But the same God who did the Red Sea, same God, same power, same kind of victory. So 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. You remember last week we did just a quick review of what's happening in the pages of 2 Corinthians. It's the second letter that we have from Paul the Apostle to the Corinthians, but it was not the second letter that he wrote. There were lots of letters flying back and forth between Paul and the Corinthians because they had a tense relationship. You, you may know somebody that you have a tense relationship with. It's like sometimes you're hot and sometimes you're cold. Sometimes you're in between. Sometimes you, you know, stop and talk for 20 minutes. Sometimes you don't want to make eye contact with them. That was Paul's relationship with the Corinthians. There was a lot of misunderstanding. In fact, there was so much misunderstanding that the Apostle Paul had to send one of his co-workers, a man named Titus, to actually go to Corinth to just make sure, hey, are we cool? Is everybody cool? Are you cool, Paul? Uh, Paul's cool with you? Just to make sure that everything was fine. That's the kind of relationship that, that, that he had with them. And there was, it was tense for a reason. Because Paul had gone into Corinth early on as Christianity is just starting to spread. And he was really the one who preached the gospel where people believed in Jesus for the first time. He gathers up this church. He starts, he starts teaching them. He stays with them for a while. But because he was an apostle, once he got them settled, he moved on to another town and another place and, and did the same thing there. And then he moved on to another place and another place and another place. And he would write these letters back to his churches to make sure everything was going right, to answer any questions that they had. Well, what happened when Paul left Corinth to move on to someplace else is there were other teachers who would come in. And this was common in the day. You know, new teachers who maybe were apostles or who were early Christians, they would come in and they would preach about Jesus. They would train the church for a while. They would stay there sometimes weeks, sometimes months, sometimes years. And then eventually they would move on too. So there was kind of this circuit that was working. Well, the, some of the teachers that came in from behind Paul were not good teachers. They were false prophets. That's how he refers to them. And Paul says that they were not preaching the same gospel that he was preaching. So it probably would have sounded a lot like the Jesus that the Corinthians believed in. But there were just a few minor changes, but those minor changes were very significant. And so Paul calls them false teachers. And not only were they teaching a different Christ, they were really trying to stir up the Corinthians against Paul. They started making these accusations against him, which you can read between the lines in 2 Corinthians. Accusations like, you know Paul doesn't really love you, right? Because if he loved you, why, why did he move on? Why didn't he just stay here and be with you forever? He doesn't really love you. Can you trust Paul? Can you really trust him? You know, he's wanting to take this offering, take it back to the Jerusalem church, quotation marks. How do you know he doesn't want to pocket that money? How do you know he's not just trying to get rich off you? They accused Paul of being a lion in his letters. So strong, so bold. But when you actually met him in person, he was kind of meek, kind of mild. In fact, one of the big accusations that these false teachers made uh, about him uh, to, to convince the Corinthians that they shouldn't really listen to him is that Paul was not actually a great preacher. Compared to them, he was nothing. He was unimpressive in his speech. He didn't have a commanding presence. And what's crazy is the Corinthians, some of them, they kind of bought into it. Like, yeah, well, maybe, maybe he doesn't love us. 
yeah, he is kind of like real confrontational in his, in his letters, but then we're like, we're around him and he's, he's not the same, you know, man, is he two-faced? Is he hypocritical? They kind of started to believe some of these things that these false teachers were sharing. And then so they, they did that thing, which is what we do when we don't want to be mean and we're not 100% sure that the, the person that we're talking about is wrong. We, we will ask accusatory questions. So you went, you went shopping, huh? So I see, see you went and played some golf. You know those accusatory questions. Hey, I'm just checking. Did you follow up on such and such and such and such? Well, the answer is no, that you didn't. And they knew that you didn't. And so they didn't want to just say, why didn't you? So they just asked an accusatory question. That's what the, the Corinthians write back to Paul. And so much of 2 Corinthians, in fact, the last three chapters, 10, 11, and 12, uh, 10, 11, 12, 13, that's four chapters, are a defense of his character and his ministry. That's what the last half or the last section of 2 Corinthians is, is Paul reaffirming to the Corinthians that he can be trusted. Because here's what's at stake for Paul. It's not his reputation. He doesn't care that much about his reputation. In fact, he said that he would let his reputation be ruined if it made Christ be exalted. What he cares about and what he's concerned about is the genuine faith of the Corinthians, that these false teachers are going to come in and they're going to twist Jesus so much that it's going to be destructive to their faith. Now, you might be, well, my faith is not in jeopardy. That may be what you're thinking. You're not planning on switching religions this week. You know, you're going to leave here and you're going to enjoy the rest of your day and then you're going to go to work tomorrow and you're going to come home and watch some TV, maybe do some, uh, some errands. You're going to take the kids here. You're going to do this. You're going to go back to work the rest of the week and then you'll be back here next Sunday. That's kind of the plan. Nobody's planning on switching religions. Probably most of us aren't. So, you know, my faith really isn't in jeopardy. That's maybe what you're thinking to yourself. But you remember faith is not this, this one-time belief in a set of facts that we see in the Scripture. That's not, that's not faith. Faith is an ongoing relationship with the one that you believe in. So your faith in Jesus needed to start with some certain set of facts that Jesus was the Son of God, that He was born of the Virgin Mary, that He lived a sinless life, that He died on the cross, that He's resurrected from the dead, that He ascended into heaven, uh, that uh, one day He will return. Our faith starts with that list of statements, but it doesn't end there. Our faith is ongoing. It's an ongoing belief and trust and dependence on God. And so while you may not be planning on switching religions, that daily and weekly trust and pursuit of Jesus, that very much is at risk. We have lots of enemies coming against that kind of faith. Now just ask Solomon. You know, you remember Solomon? He was the son of King David. And right as he was born, David got a word from a prophet that this was the future king of Israel. And sure enough, it happened. Solomon became king and God comes to him and says, Solomon, I'll give you whatever you want. I loved your father. I was committed to your father. What, what do you want? And where many people would have asked for riches or fame, what did Solomon ask for? He asked for wisdom. God was so pleased with his, his request for wisdom that God said, I'll make you the wisest man who's ever lived. And not only that, but I'll make you rich and I'll make you famous too. So Solomon got all of that. But then you read the last pages of Solomon's life from the scripture, the last chapter of his life. It says that Solomon loved many foreign women. And the problem with that is that these foreign women were not worshipers of the one true God like the Israelites. They worshipped all these false gods. 
Solomon loved these women. And to have these women, he needed to, he needed to make room for them to worship their gods. So Solomon, in the last chapter of his life, began to build these altars to these false gods surrounding, surrounding Jerusalem. He even built an idol, an altar to the god Moloch, which is re- referred to in Leviticus chapter 20 as a god. The way you worship this god was that you would go and sacrifice your children. Solomon built an altar, a place of worship to that god on the mountain outside of Jerusalem so that one of his wives could go and worship her God. And then his story ends. Just like that. No big redemption moment. No coming back to the faith at the beginning. That's where his story ends. And what Solomon can teach us today is you and I may not plan on switching religions, but our faith can slip away from us. That there are enemies who come against our genuine faith. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, he's talking about the signs of the end, the end of days, the last things. And he says, the love of many will grow cold. It's possible for many in here today to have genuine faith in Jesus at this moment, but for there to be a future moment where that love has gone cold, where we walk the path of Solomon. Now, if you would have gone to Solomon earlier in his life when he was the king of Israel and they had, he had built the temple for God in Jerusalem, this magnificent building, you remember the story, Solomon prays, this unbelievable prayer. You can read it in the pages of the Bible. It's an unbelievable prayer. When he prays, this glory cloud of God comes down and it fills the temple. It's not a metaphorical cloud. It's not you know, some kind of religious statement. Like a physical cloud comes down and fills up the temple, the glory of God. And it's so thick. The priests who are working in the temple, they, they have to come out because they can't see anything. If you had come to Solomon in that moment and you had said, Hey, Solomon, did you know at the end of your life you won't even really believe in this stuff? You'll make altars for false gods? He would say, No way. No way. Look at what I'm looking at. Look at what I'm experiencing. I'm experiencing the glory of the one true God. And so we need to guard ourselves from these enemies of our faith. And it may be a person Maybe a person, just like it was for the Apostle Paul. These false teachers, these very real people who are an enemy to your genuine faith. It could be your past. Your past haunts you. Some things that you've done in your past always tripping you up as you walk into the future with Christ. It could be your circumstance. Your situation could be an enemy of your genuine faith. It could be some specific weakness for sin that you've had for a long time that just seems to steal away your genuine faith. It could be part of your personality. That could be an enemy of your genuine faith. It could be that you're a proud person. It could be that you are a boastful person. It could be that you are a negative person, a pessimistic person. It, it, it could be uh, that, uh, that you put yourself first in every situation. It could be that you're a self-righteous person. There are all kinds of enemies to our faith. But let's be encouraged by the scripture. Second Corinthians, I want you to see it again. Verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Now, the flesh in the New Testament can mean two different things. It can be the the sin-tainted and twisted part of us, or it can just be our kind of normal, ordinary life experience, just this life in this body which we're all living. And here, in this context, it's just talking about that ordinary life, ordinary circumstances that everybody lives. You have flesh, you have a body. That's what he's talking about. So this life that we're living in this body... Uh, Even though we're living it in that body, we don't wage war 
according to our flesh. So even though we live by these ordinary you know, circumstances, we don't wage war against uh, our enemies with ordinary circumstances and ordinary principles. Now usually when we're talking about waging war in church, we're talking about Satan, that we're waging war against Satan and his demons. And that's definitely in view here, which we'll see in just a second. But there are all kinds of enemies to our faith. And we need to know something about Satan and his demons this morning. We need to understand that they are opportunists. Satan is an opportunist. His demons are opportunists. You remember in the scripture, Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is uh, baptized and the Holy Spirit immediately leads him out into the wilderness. This intense time that Jesus has in the wilderness for 40 days where he fasts, he doesn't eat anything. And he's just out there with the Spirit of God, receiving that anointing from God. And he's out there. And when does Satan come to tempt Jesus? At the beginning of the 40 days, right in the middle of the 40 days? No, at the very end of the 40 days when Jesus is weak, he hasn't eaten anything in 40 days, uh, he's been alone for 40 days, right then is when Satan comes to him. And what does Satan tempt him with? Why don't you take these stones and turn them into bread? Jesus hadn't eaten anything in 40 days. Satan is an opportunist. Demons are opportunists. You remember that story in Matthew chapter 12? Jesus is teaching about demons and he says, you can clean out your house of the one demon that's there, put everything in order, but that demon goes out and he wants to come back. And when he comes back, he's going to come back, but he's not coming back alone. He's coming back with seven of his other friends, opportunists. So what that means for us is it means that Satan will create uh, situations. He he will create uh, warfare against you, but he will also just seize an opportunity that's in front of him. Like if you have a significant relationship, uh, a husband, a wife, uh, uh, maybe an extremely close mother-daughter relationship, father-son, something like that, or a significant other, boyfriend, girlfriend, right? uh, most of the time you get along great. But every once in a while, if you're a normal person, there'll be some little tension there, right? A little, little conflict, not very much because you're perfect in every way. But if you're a normal person, uh, you know, there's going to be a little conflict every now and then. And so sometimes when you're having that conflict, you'll hear like you get this kind of idea in your mind and you're like, oh no, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say that, but it's just there and it's going to be so rich and it's going to just kind of jab the person that you're talking about because that's what everybody's looking for is everybody's looking for that moment where you can just stick it to the person that you're arguing with, having the conflict with, and it just pops into your brain and and you say it and then you go, oh my gosh, that was totally demonic uh, because it just explodes right then and it's bad and you knew it was going to be bad, but you didn't know how bad it was going to be. Is that Satan? Yeah, possibly. Listen, Satan definitely wants to come against your marriage. He definitely wants to come against the strong, God-centered relationships in your life. But did Satan create that conflict in your marriage or in that relationship? Maybe not. It could be that one of you was being a jerk. That's always in view when you're dealing with humanity. But he doesn't really care. Satan is efficient. And so he will start strategies against you. He will start situations in your life or he will just use the situations that are already there. He's an opportunist. And we have to know that when we wage war against the enemies of our faith, it may be a very physical, tangible thing that's coming against us, but there's always something under the surface. That's what Ephesians chapter 6 says. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. And so you may be wrestling with, against flesh and blood. It may be a very real person like it was for the Apostle Paul that is coming against your genuine faith. But there's also a war being waged underneath the surface. I mean, that's what Paul says about these false teachers in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I want you to read verse 3. 
He says, but I'm afraid that as the serpent, that Satan, deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion of Christ. So in the same way Eve was tempted by Satan, Paul is concerned about the Corinthians, that they too are going to be tempted in that same way. Now flip the page over to chapter 11, verse 13. For such men are false apostles. These are these guys that have come in to stir up the church against Paul. Deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So Paul says, hey, these false teachers, they are servants of Satan. Were they real people presenting real circumstances and situations that the Paul and the Corinthians had to deal with? Absolutely. But Satan was also there, stirring everything up. So these enemies that come against us, they may be real, they may be tangible, but there also may be an element of the enemy, Satan and his demons that are at work. Now it's important for us to remember we can make two mistakes when it comes to these things. We can make the mistake of thinking that everything that bad that happens to us is from Satan. Because the danger in that is it alleviates us from any personal responsibility. I never have to change if everything is Satan's fault. That's just not true. There are some things that happen to you that are your fault. There are some things that are causing your marriage um, to go in the wrong direction that are not Satan's fault, they're your fault. Some off relationship in your life, it's not Satan's fault, it's your fault. Your work's not going well, it may not be Satan, it may be your fault. Maybe you need to work harder and show up on time and do what is asked of you. And so we need to be careful that we don't just assign everything that's hard to Satan. It could be us. But we also need to make sure that we don't underestimate Satan and his demons because there's always a struggle underneath the surface in unseen places that we can't see. And Satan is an opportunist. And when life comes against you, he'll use that to come against you as well. And the problem with underestimating Satan and his demons is that we end up just thinking only in natural terms, only in the visible, and we end up waging war according to our flesh. That's what it says in verse 3. Not waging war according to our flesh. What is it talking about? Here are three, uh, three things that you might find yourself saying that will let you know that you may be waging war according to your flesh. Uh, the first one would be something like, um, I-, I promise I'll never do that again. You ever say that to God? That, that was my last time. That was the very last time. I'll never, ever, 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 squared, square root, ever do that again. If you find yourself saying that, I doubt it's the very first time you've said that. Most likely, you're waging war according to your flesh, your willpower, your strength, your own personal wisdom, your own personal strategy. And it's probably going to let you down. You might find yourself saying, if you're waging war according to your flesh, like, I'm really seriously committed this time. As if the last time that you were committed, you were only half in, that you weren't that serious about it. But now I'm serious about my commitment this time. I'm serious. I'm going to read my Bible every day this week. Uh, not, every, not even every day this week. I'm going to read my Bible for the, every day for the rest of my life. It's going to be amazing. I'm seriously committed to that. Well, how many times do you follow through with a commitment like that? I hardly ever do. I'm a lot will commit to eating healthy, right, because that's a thing. And uh, people seem to be impressed when 
you tell them that you're eating healthy. And, uh, and so there's different seasons of my life that, you know, I'm like, I love double cheeseburgers, but double cheeseburgers are bad for me apparently. And so I need to eat healthy. So I'll go on the internet, which is a valuable resource of information and wisdom. And, uh, and so I just searched one day, this was a long time ago, you know, what do healthy people eat? And so I'm listening through all the things that healthy people eat. And, you know, none of them taste good. Like, let's just be honest about it. Like, if you think healthy food tastes good, there's something wrong with you. Because healthy food doesn't have any cheese. And cheese is the best spice ever. Like, cheese is better than whatever it is you're eating. Cheese is it. Man, cheese is legit. And healthy food doesn't have cheese. And so it all tastes bad. But I'm scanning the list of potential things that I might be into. And I want it to be really easy. Because when we have to do something hard, we want to make it as easy as possible. And so I lock on, as I'm reading the internet, which never lets you down, healthy people drink carrot juice. Now, I didn't really know what carrot juice was. But it's a thing. And so I went to the grocery store. And I just loaded up on carrot juice. Like I was going to forgo any other meals. And just carrot juice, you know, for the rest of my life and that's healthy and so I bring home carrot juice I don't know if you've ever had carrot juice um it's nasty like it's just it's just straight up nasty like in every way it's nasty if you don't know what it is it's carrots and it turns into water and then it's carrot water and then they put it in a can but not like a soda can that would be appealing in some way like a like a canned good can, and you open it up and you drink it. It is totally nasty. Don't ever do it. If your doctor says carrot juice is the way for you, just say, well, I'm going to die because I'm not eating (laughs) carrot juice. It's gross. But I was committed to eating healthy, and so my commitment lasted for less than a can of carrot juice. I didn't even get finished all the way. And then it started growing this awesome mold inside of it because I kept it forever. And, uh, you know, you don't want to put stuff like that in your body. But I was seriously committed. And if you start hearing yourself talk like that, man, I'm really, I'm really committed to this. I really am going to be the man of God in my home. I'm not just going to be a worker who provides nice stuff. I'm going to be a man of God in my home. I'm serious this time. You might be, but you're probably on a path that's going to lead you to just making war according to your flesh. I'm serious. I'm going to be a woman of prayer. I'm going to wake up early before my house gets up. I'm going to be like that Proverbs 31 woman. And I'm I'm going to be a woman of prayer. And I'm going to to be the caregiver in my home in a spiritual way, not just a physical way. I'm serious about it this time. You might be. But you're probably waging war according to your flesh. When you hear yourself start saying those things, you have to remember that when... Enemies come to steal our genuine faith. It's not just a physical battle. So it's going to require more than just physical resources. It's not just a, not just a surface level battle. So it's going to take more than just surface level tools and strategy. It's a spiritual battle that requires spiritual resources. Look at verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So these weapons have divine power. So when you fight with your weapons, they have human power. 
When you fight with God's weapons, they have God's power. That's why some of us have not experienced a lot of victory in our lives because we've been using human power to achieve something that only God's power can do. And so it says these weapons have divine power. Now what weapons is he talking about? He doesn't, he doesn't specify here. In other places in his writings, he does specify. He does in Ephesians chapter 6. You remember he lists out the armor of God. But he also lists out part of that armor in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I want you to turn there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This is what it says in verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So he says to put on the breastplate of faith and love. That breastplate, it was a piece of armor that Roman soldiers would have worn. I mean, you can imagine it in your mind, just a piece of metal that covered their heart and covered their vital organs so that when a spear came, they were protected. When a knife came, a sword came, they were protected in some way. Uh, But that's a defensive piece of equipment. That's to defend what's coming against. But look at the words he used to describe this breastplate. It's of faith and love. So it's a defensive weapon, but those are action verbs. Which means we're not just defending ourselves today against the enemies of our faith. We're also making war against the enemies of our faith. And how do we make war according to this breastplate? It's faith and it's love. See, what does love fight off? When you are a loving person, when you act like a loving person, when you genuinely care about somebody, when you are actively putting them ahead of yourself, what does it fight off in you? It fights off in me self-centeredness, selfishness, me-firstness. Because selfishness, it's a door holder for all these other enemies of our faith to come in. Selfishness will hold the door open for anger. Hey, you're first. You're the most important. So you have a right to be angry. Anger comes in. Genuine enemy of your faith. Hey, you are, you are right in this situation. You have the upper hand in this situation. You deserve that money. You deserve to have those things. Come on in, greed. Selfishness will open the door to treating people however you want to treat them. Why? Because you're the most important person in your room. You're the most important person in this house. Your schedule is the most important schedule in the family. Selfishness will be the door holder for a lot of different enemies to come in to try to steal genuine faith. But when you are a loving person, it fights off that selfishness and faith. Now again, this faith, this breastplate of faith and love, it's not just referring back to a a few lists of facts that we believed in a long time ago. It's an ongoing, active relationship of faith. See, the problem with just thinking of faith in God as being something that you believed in once upon a time is that there's nothing ongoing to build up that faith. You're still kind of living off a past moment, a past moment of belief. 
But when you have active faith, you're, you're believing that God can intervene in your situation today. And you're praying that He will intervene in your situation today. So that when He does intervene in your situation today, then your faith is built up. And you're ready to believe Him again tomorrow and the day after that, the day after that, and the day after that. Like this week, we had some of our families who have come around a family in our city who is not from the United States. Uh, they've come here because their little uh, infant, a uh, little boy, was born blind. And they've come seeking some medical answers and, and try to, to, uh, to reverse that blindness. And so they're here, but they're kind of isolated from, you know, their home and, and uh, kind of just have very few people who are around. And, and, um, and so some in our church have, in a very loving way, just come around them to love on them and to help them in any way. It's really a cool thing. And and so one of the families in our church was able to get this little boy a doctor's appointment because not only is he blind, but they've been afraid that maybe he is deaf as well. And they've been afraid for quite some time. And so you can imagine the, the terror that those parents are feeling, that the, the blindness looks like an inevitability, but also deafness into that situation. You know, any parent would be terrified, and you can imagine yourself in, the, in their shoes. And so one of the families was able to get them appointment with a, a specialist and and so the other day, one of our ladies went to the doctor's appointment with him, and they, they start trying to test the, the little boy, uh, but they can't get any kind of reading on the test. It's not coming up. It's, it's unclear. So she sends out some text messages and some different ways to get the word out to, hey, start praying for this, this family. Start praying for this baby, because the test is going down right now. And the first test, it revealed just kind of, it didn't read, it didn't register, and and so be praying. And so Amanda and I were sitting in our living room. And, and so we prayed right there in the middle of what we were doing. And many other people who got that word started to pray. And, and so the doctor said, let's wait until he falls asleep. Because we can get a good reading if he falls asleep. I'm not sure that we're going to get one if he's awake. And so uh, the lady who from our church who was there immediately started praying that he would fall asleep. And boom, he fell asleep. And any time... He started to kind of wake up. She'd start praying again. And he'd fall back asleep. So the first reading, it just didn't register. Nothing registered. But now people are praying for this little boy, his family. And they go back to do the second reading. The doctor says to him, your boy can hear fine. Take him home and enjoy him. Now, who knows what happened? Maybe the instruments were broken that first time. Maybe she just didn't get a reading, good reading because he was moving around. I don't know. I don't care. All I know is that we prayed in our living room that God would make that little boy hear. And he can hear. So my faith is built up. Now whatever happens next, I'm not just reaching back to something that happened to me a long, long time ago. I only have to reach back to two days ago. That's why some of us don't have any faith right now in this moment that God can intervene because you stopped believing years ago. So you've seen no fruit of his intervention and it's not because he can't. It's because we have not, because we ask not. If you want a strong faith, don't go back years. You need to be able to go back minutes. God, I ask you to, to step into this situation, which is important to me. It may not be important to anybody else in this world, but it's important to me. Can you help me right here? And he does. And you go back to that moment to push you through the next moment of doubt. So when the enemies come against you and they start playing tricks on your mind, you don't have to reach back a long ways. You can just reach back a short ways 
And then look at what he says next. So we're wearing this breastplate, 1 Thessalonians 5. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now salvation in 1 Thessalonians, not just a moment of salvation when you became a Christian, but you need one of those moments. You need a moment where you say definitively, I believe in Jesus. I believe in him. You need that moment where you turn that corner. And if you haven't had that moment, you don't need anybody to pray for you. And you don't need anybody to say some magic words for you. In this moment right now, you can say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. You need that moment. But it's also talking about a salvation moment where our salvation will be fully experienced when Jesus Christ himself returns. That moment of salvation as well. I love it that he referred to this helmet of salvation that covers our head. You know, every soldier would have known and does know the importance of a helmet to protect your head. And it's especially true in a spiritual sense because your mind will often be a partner with the enemies of your faith. I mean, just think about how many inaccurate statements pop into your mind during the course of a day. Are those people talking about me? I feel like they're talking about me. I know that they are right over there over there whispering and why am I not in that? Why did they not invite me into that conversation? They're talking about me. I know that they are for sure. Oh my gosh, I'm going to get laid off. I read in wallstreet.com, Google, that economy is going to get bad again. I'm going to lose my job. It's going to be bad. I'm pretty sure that they're talking about me still. What Should I go over there? What should I do? Just think about how many times like inaccurate things pop into your mind. I'm all alone. I mean, I have a wife and kids and a husband and I have 400 Facebook friends, but like I'm all alone. Nobody even knows who I am. Nobody cares about me. I would challenge you to one day, if you just wanna see how many inaccurate statements pop into your brain during the day, as they do, just write them down on a piece of paper. Two weeks later, pull that piece of paper out and see how many of those things were true see how many of those things really ended up being concerns, legitimate concerns. Most of what would fill that list of what pops into our minds is totally irrelevant to the truth. Our minds are willing partners with the enemies of our faith. So he says, put on the helmet of salvation. So instead of just letting those inaccurate statements reside in us, because they're going to pop into your brain, but you can choose to leave them there. You can make room for those inaccurate statements, or you can dismiss them out of hand. So instead of just letting them take, take residence in our minds, remember things like, I've been born again. I'm a new creation in Christ, which means I have a new identity. So instead of just believing that I'm fat today and skinny tomorrow and fat the next day and fat the next day after that and skinny the next day after that, instead of just riding that roller coaster, why don't I just remember that I have a new identity and I live in the kingdom of Jesus, not just for today, but forever and ever. And so I've got a a whole new set of things by which to measure my life. And I don't have to measure myself based on what everybody else is thinking and saying and doing. Or you can remember when that tape of past mistakes starts replaying in your mind and you're back there in that moment doing that thing that you've regretted ever since that moment. Instead of just playing that cycle over and over again, just remember, hey, I've been justified by Christ, by grace. And so I stand before God 
clean and pure, not because of me, but because of Jesus. And I'm not wearing all that old baggage. I'm not that same person anymore. I've been right with God. And not only am I right with God right now, I will be right with God because of Jesus forever and ever and ever and ever. I'm going to fill my mind with that. With the, the effects of salvation that we've received and will experience for the rest of eternity. That's the helmet of salvation. And that is a weapon to fight off the enemies of our genuine faith. Now turn back to 2 Corinthians 10. Verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Stronghold is a military term. The Corinthians would have been very familiar with it. There was a military stronghold in their city. It was uh, Corinth, if you remember from a few months ago, was half of it was built kind of on flat ground. The other half of it was built on a mountain. So there was Upper Corinth and Lower Corinth. And in Upper Corinth, there was a military stronghold, a fortress. If you had a military stronghold in these days, you were, you were pretty set. And so Paul uses this idea to, to point out that there are things in our lives that have fortified themselves, who have taken up permanent residence. I mean, the simplest definition of a stronghold is whatever has a stronghold on you. And look at what those strongholds are fueled by. Verse 5, we destroy arguments. Now, the arguments here are, are not arguing with a person. It's like a defense. So if you want to know where your strongholds are, what are you constantly defending? What are you constantly justifying? What are you constantly making excuses for? Is it a person? Is it a habit of yours? Is it something that you love? Because whatever you have to justify all the time is probably a stronghold. He says, in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Where in your life do you lay a boundary so that you don't think about Jesus and this thing at the same time? We, have, we all have those parts of us, those things that we do, those things that we think, where it's like it feels weird and it feels gross and it feels wrong to think about this thing and to think about Jesus in close proximity. And so you stop doing these things a few days before you come to church. Or you, you, know, you don't participate in this if you feel like there's going to be a spiritual conversation somewhere on the horizon. Or you, you try to distance you know, when you read your Bible and when you do these things. Because it just feels wrong to put them in, in the same arena. Because it doesn't feel right for the knowledge of God, the revelation of Jesus to come into the middle of our stronghold. We don't like that. And so we try to separate What can't you quit? Just right now in your life. If you had to quit, what couldn't you quit? That's a stronghold. And most people will just live with that the rest of their lives. And Eventually, they'll get tired of feeling bad about it, and so they'll start justifying it, and then they'll start being on the side that not only justifies it, but celebrates it. We'll start redefining it based on what our culture says. 
but you don't have to live with a stronghold. God has given us weapons and he's given us victory. In the Old Testament, victory came in a lot of different ways. You know, you, there was miraculous immediate victory, like in the story of Jericho, the Israelites come into the land of promise, but the Jericho people are there and they've got a massive stronghold, a fortress there and with these amazing walls and there was no way the Israelites were getting in. And so God prescribes to them a, a, a way instead of kind of fighting against it for seven days, they just walk around one time. And on the seventh day, they walk around seven times and then they, they shout really loud and they do. And what happens? All those walls fall down and then they go in and they immediately capture the city of Jericho. That victory was immediate and it was miraculous and that's possible. And many people experience that. You have some stronghold in your life. You come to a moment where your faith is at maximum capacity and you pray in the powerful name of Jesus with somebody agreeing with you in prayer and boom, you're freed from that thing. It's miraculous and it is immediate. That's possible. And I would guess that there have been different kinds of victories along the way that would fall in the category of that for you. Other battles and victories in the Old Testament come a little different way. They come by foolish methods. Remember the story of Gideon? Gideon was the least in his family, and he was hiding. When an angel comes to him and says, Gideon, we're going to raise you up as the next leader of Israel. He's like, not me, I'm the least, I'm a nobody. And then it's like, no, it's you, because the Midianites, they're oppressing the people of Israel. And so Gideon raises up an army, he raises up 32,000 fighting men to go with him in battle. And, and that sounded good. They were still outnumbered by a significant amount, but that sounded good. 32,000 strong army, but God says, no, there's too many. And so why don't you send home everyone who is afraid? We're getting ready to go into battle. Just send home everybody who's afraid. 22,000 people leave. This is that moment. They just go home. He's left with 10,000. God says, no, still too many. Still too many. And they narrow it down, long story short, to 300. So Gideon has an army of 300 men going against a legitimate army of thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands. And God said, here's what I want you to do. You're not even going to take weapons. You take a torch, and you take a clay jar, and you take a trumpet. And so Gideon and his 300 men, they take a torch, a clay jar, and a trumpet, and they win victory. Sometimes strongholds disappear through foolish methods. Like your stronghold may need to be driven out with fasting and prayer means you're going to go to work tomorrow and you're not going to eat lunch but somebody's going to invite you to lunch and they'll be like hey you want to go lunch with us and the first day you're going to try to play it off and be cool like oh no it's cool man i don't want to go today and they're going to come back the next day because that's just kind of what you do hey we're going to lunch today no 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 what, what are you doing ah, I don't know. wednesday they're coming back around they're like what are you doing are you not eating well i'm stronghold and fasting and praying you know i mean they're, are they going to get that no and when you have to say i'm fasting this week and why are you fasting i don't know i'm just fasting because that's in the bible and i'm a christian you're going to feel foolish that's the reason some of us don't experience the power of God. Because sometimes you don't get the power of God and your dignity at the same time. Some of you need victory. You're going to have to look a little foolish to get it. And then we see other victory in the Old Testament that comes from just conventional, strategic warfare. King David captures the city of Jerusalem. He sends up a couple of his men 
up the water shaft to unlock the gate so his army can come in. That was just a normal military strategy, something anybody would have done in that situation. And listen, your stronghold may disappear, not in a moment of miraculous disappearance, maybe not even in foolish methods, but just day after day, faithfulness. Capturing your mind and making those thoughts obedient to Jesus day after day, moment after moment, And pretty soon you get down the road of that daily faithfulness and you turn around and go, that thing that I was so caught up in six months ago, I'm just not caught up in it again anymore. And it just kind of fell by the wayside as I was just faithful to Jesus. I don't know how victory is going to come to you, but it will come. Because the same God that we read about in the pages of the scripture is the same God who has placed his power here among his people. Same God, same power, same victory. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you never change. So we don't have to guess what what mood you're in today. You're the same. So God, I pray that you would Help us to trust and believe. I pray that we would arm ourselves with faith and love and protect our minds with the memory and the expectation of salvation. In Jesus' name.